Edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September 24th, 2013, and this is episode 1213 of the Survival Podcast. Today is going to be a listener feedback show. Now, it's Tuesday, not Monday, but if you remember, yesterday I preempted the feedback show because uh, I was in a great mood and I got a late start. And uh, a lot of the news stories that I was considering for the show, and I might even filter some of those out and try to stay more positive today, but I was in a good mood and I thought if I started talking about idiots at the Capitol and what they're doing and stupid things like little kids being suspended from school for shooting an airsoft gun on their own property, not during school hours, and other things like that, that I might just amp up and snap a freaking gasket. And I was in too good a mood to do that. So I did a show on barbecuing yesterday. It was a Hail Mary. I didn't know how it would be received. Apparently, a lot of you loved it. So in the future, I will be doing a show more dedicated to individual recipes and different things that you can cook, because uh, we've already covered grills and methodologies now. And one of you, I want to smack you because I like you, sent me a freaking grill that Weber makes that sort of kind of, in a way, roundabout like that green egg thing, except it's a smoker, a stand-up smoker that's insulated. And now I want one of those. And it's your fault. Thank you for telling me, but I'm still mad because now it's another thing I want to buy and spend money on. It looks awesome. Anyway, today it will be feedback and some other things that have been going on. I'll fill you in on a few different things uh, in the beginning of the show. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. If you want to learn how to make knives and you've never done it before, there would be no th nothing easier you could do than to get a kit knife and some uh, custom material for your hand handle scales and things like that. And if you really weren't sure what you were doing, you could pick up the phone and call them and they'd help you make a selection. And you could get a book or a DVD or a book and a DVD while you're at it that helps you through the process. And you can learn to start making knives on your own kind of as a first step with that kind of almost like a snap-together kit, more like a glue-together model kit if you remember those when you were kids. Uh, or if you're already an experienced knife maker and you're looking for exotic handle material or some of the finest steels you can find or Kydex-making materials or anything else like that, check out KnifeKits.com. They are the go-to source online for everything that the knife maker could want. Very great reputation in the different blade forms. That was one of the way we vetted them out when they asked to be a sponsor over three years ago. They're awesome. Check them out, knifekits.com. Remember, they do a discount for the member support brigade. So if you're a member, log into your benefits area first and uh, check out knifekits.com's discount for you because it's worth getting the discount. That's part of why you're a member. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the magazine that was the first thing that I ever subscribed to when I first subscribed to a magazine as an adult. I found them right after I got out of the Army. I had come out of a rural background as a kid, but had moved to the big city of Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area to, uh, to start out my career. And I was kind of missing all of the stuff that I grew up with. And I, lo and behold, at a Barnes and Noble, found a copy of Backwoods Home Magazine. That was 1993, and I've been a reader and or subscriber ever since. And now I get to work with people like Dave Duffy. Dave Duffy. <laughs> If you're listening, Dave, I bet you'll get a kick out of that. Dave Duffy, uh, Masai Ayub, John Silvera, Jackie Clay, and other great contributors at Backwoods Home. 
They're a great magazine. If you're looking for something that teaches you self-reliance and self-sufficiency, kind of the way Mother Earth News used to, but with a libertarian flair, check out Backwoods Home, your source for information, your go-to source for information on self-reliance, self-sufficiency, independence, and libertarian thought. Backwoods Home Magazine. Again, they also do a special program for members of the Support Brigade, so log in in your benefits area before you uh, sign up for a new subscription with them. Next up, uh, the 13 Skills Badge Contest is live. I will have a link in today's show notes. Please go there and vote. It's at the Survival Podcast Forum, so you have to have a forum account to do that. It's in the 13 Skills Board. There's a whole bunch of them. You can vote for up to five, reducing an approval voting process. So whichever gets the most votes with everybody being able to vote for up to five candidates is the winner. That winner will get a free lifetime membership in the MSB. You have your work cut out for you. There's some really awesome badges there. After we pick a winner, I'm going to run another contest. It's going to be for you guys with blogs. Display any badge of your choice. You get entered automatically, and then I will give you, the winner of that contest, a lifetime MSB membership. I'll do that by a random draw of entries. So I'm going to do this not just for graphic artists, but for bloggers as well that will get the word out about 13 skills and display those badges prominently on their blog. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you'll do that, you'll get exclusive content available along to members to help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join, before you join with service discount in the subject line and in one or two sentences tell me who you are and what you're doing or if you're prior service who you are and what you did. Now, I don't care if your last time you were in service was 1982. I get emails like that. I was in the Army from 78 to 82. Does that count? Yes. Yes, it does. Just send me a little bit about that background and I will send you a discount code instructions to sign up with a discount that's permanent and it's available on any membership term. Okay, with that wrapped up, let's uh, go into our uh, our segment on uh, history. There's not a lot to talk about today in, in the year 1213. Some of the stuff is probably only interesting because we have context for it from previous shows. Uh, in the year 1213, on May 15th, King John of England submits to Pope Innocent III, who in turn lifts the interdict of 1208. In other words, the king is no longer excommunicated from the church. So this all started when the Pope assigned a role of an archbishop in England, and John said, no, we don't want him. So they had a little tryst that lasted, uh, what, five years, and they finally, I guess, uh, made peace with each other. Um, Pope Innocent III issues a charter calling for the Fifth Crusade to recapture Jerusalem because the Fourth Crusade, which started around, I think, 1206, if I remember right, was a failure. And uh, other than sacking a lot of cities that were not actually part of the Crusades uh, and doing mercenary work for Venice, uh, the Fourth Crusade was a flop. The Fifth Crusade is launched to recapture Jerusalem. Um, and uh, one other interesting thing, Jin China, overrun by the Mongols under Genghis Khan. They will then plunder the countryside and cities until only Beijing remains free despite two bloody palace coups and a lengthy siege. So the Mongols are doing their thing, taking over China at this point. 
Uh, we all think about the stories of the Mongols, you know, heading east and, you know, the barbarian wars and stuff like that. The truth is that Genghis isn't the guy that does that. The guy that's really responsible for that is the less spoken of, but really awesome Kublai Khan. I don't know awesome is the right word. Maybe, uh, more successful son Kublai Khan, who will be soon born. We'll tell you about that when we get to that episode. Anyway, with that, we've uh, taken our look at history. Not a lot there, except you still see a lot of politics going on. Um, what you should start to see, though, is that, you know, one thing I left out, there was a Battle of Dom, uh, where a French fleet was destroyed off the Belgian port, a face, first major, major victory for the uh, fledgling English Royal Navy. As we go forward, you'll see that Germany's involved in warfare here with this French-British thing as well. Uh, we think of World War II and World War I with Europe at war as being something unique. But as we go through these history segments, you'll see that there's nothing unique about Europe at war. It's been at war for a very long time. Um, what we see today is relative peace in Europe is actually kind of the exception rather than the rule when we look historically over the context of many years. Next up, real quick, I do have now um, one spot open for the Urban Garden Workshop. I had three people who uh, had things come up that were booked, had paid their deposit, etc., were coming, and then something went wrong with work or family life or whatever, and they couldn't go. put out a post about that. Two were claimed immediately. So as of this moment, I have one spot open for the Urban Garden Workshop. We're going to be doing small-scale uh, design uh, on my site. And uh, the first day is actually a bonus day, a chicken workshop. And really at the cost I'm charging for the thing, that's kind of free. Um, not everybody's coming to the chicken part, but a lot of you guys are. Again, I have one spot open. There's a post on it. It probably won't still be open based on how quick the first two went by the time you hear this. But if it is, you'll know because as soon as it's not available, uh, I'll change the post that it'll say they're no longer available. Anyway, let's get into some of your emails now. Um, You guys can send me emails for this. Put question for Jack, video for Jack, news story for Jack, comment for Jack, anything like that. Basically, one word or two words followed by for Jack, and that'll go into a special place where I, I screen it for shows like this. Due to the sheer number of emails, I do not um, answer all of them. There's no way. Um, but I do generally at least scan all of them and know what's going on. And a lot of times you guys will send me a news story. I'm going to cover it, but I'll be using it for context with another story and you might not even know it. So your emails are important. And a lot of times you guys might get a personal response from me, uh, where I'm not going to do a, an email on the show, but I've, I've done some, you know, brief and lengthy responses. So I want you to know that just because you don't hear back doesn't mean I don't answer or I don't read. And I do give some uh, answers from time to time. So if you've never gotten an answer from me, keep emailing. You probably will sooner or later. I do my best to uh, deal with the sheer volume of things. Uh, based on my volume of real legitimate emails, if I gave every email five minutes, uh, I would spend 24 hours a day. That's actual math worked out, doing nothing but answering emails. So just please understand that, and, and uh, that's why you don't always hear back from me. Let's at least start out with a gardening question before I get my blood up over some of the crap the idiots are doing. Um, question for Jack from David. Hi, Jack. I've tried to grow several varieties of winter squash here in Wisconsin in the last several years. I've had poor fruit development and production. There are few fruits, and what fruits grow are stunted and small. I get excellent production of our cucurbit family crops, namely melons and cucumbers. My winter squash lag behind. 
We're in zone 4A, and our soils are neutral pH, low in organic matter with high mineral content. My grow bed is no-till and has been improved with rotted manure, compost, and leaf mold in the last several years. I use a six-inch mulch of hardwood chips. I fertilize heavily with kelp and cottonseed meal, knowing the squash are heavy feeders. I think the problem is pollination. I do not remember the last time I saw a honeybee on my property. Have you heard of poor pollination being cause of these problems? I'm planning on building a top or hive this winter. Should I do more than one? Any light you can shed on the problem would be appreciated. Thank you, David, a.k.a. Rogue Libertarian. Uh, yeah, that's most likely your problem. Um, in some soils, going that deep with mud mulch can cause some issues with anaerobic activity. So one thing you could try is pulling back a little bit of mulch, but if the plants otherwise look healthy, and it sounds like they do, that's probably not the case. Um, your melons and your uh, cucurbits have a much smaller flower and are often visited by these little bitty flies that you hardly even notice that go in and out of them and do the pollinating for you. A squash blossom is much deeper, and generally it's bees that get way up in there and get enough pollen to successfully pollinate. So the fact that you don't have any bees around is likely your biggest issue. Until you get your top bar hive put in, what I would suggest that you do is monitor your squashes. Look for female squash uh, blossoms. They're very easy to tell. They're the ones that have a little fruit and a blossom on the end of it where the males don't have a fruit. They're just a stem. When you see a female blossom uh, open, you're not going to worry about cross-pollination for seed here or anything because you're not getting fruit anyway. So you can just take a male flower, pull the petals off it so you have access to the stamen and the pollen, and use it like a Q-tip and dab the, uh, the head of your female flowers. Uh, do that once a day. Just take a walk through your squash patch. Whenever you see a female blossom open, grab yourself a male blossom, pull the pe petals off it, and manually pollinate it. Uh, your production will go up. You're going to build a top bar hive. I think that's awesome. Should you build more than one? Yes. Every beekeeper I've ever talked to says especially new beekeepers should always start with at least two hives. The reason being is you don't know what you don't know what you don't know. And when you have two hives and both seem to be doing good, you're probably good. But if one's lagging behind, you have something to observe against. So every beekeeper I have talked to, it's suggested that people start out with two or three hives. Um, and it sounds like it would make sense since you need the little buggers there. So I'd recommend two hives uh, at a minimum to get started. But again, it's almost certain that your problem is pollination, and the manual pollination, people always make a big deal out of it. I don't have enough time or whatever. It takes seconds, literal seconds, to go from no production to great production. It's still, um, you know, you still got quite a, t a time right now with winter squash before you go to a full frost. Even where you're at, you probably have a good month or two. If the plants are big and healthy and you do that, you'll probably get a few squash before the end of the year. Okay, we got off to a good start. Let's go ahead and look at the dark waters of pending doom in the economic world. Um, I'm on Yahoo Finance. This article came to me from the wonderful, the awesome Dorothy Spirico, my wife. Um, she says, love you, honey, but this sucks in a link. And I click on the link, Yahoo Finance article, 10 most threatened state pension plans. So these are... Not just is the state in trouble, but is their, is their pension plan in trouble at the state level? So if we were talking about Florida and Jacksonville was being stupid with its money, that's not necessarily a Florida state pension issue. Okay, 
These are pensions for state workers, not city or county workers, which is a whole different pile of crap and a whole huge different layer of problems. But here I'm going to give you the list of the states in order. Number 10, North Dakota. Number 9, Louisiana. Number 8, Hawaii. Number 7, New Hampshire. Number 6, Mississippi. Number 5, Alaska. Number 4, Kansas. Number 3, Kentucky. Number 2, Connecticut. Number 1, Illinois. But the bigger story here is when you read the individual uh, components and you start realizing what this sounds like. Let me give you an example. Louisiana. Louisiana, with a population of 4.6 million, has assets of 33.5 billion, liabilities of 108.5 billion. Let's look at that again. Assets of 33 billion, liabilities of 108 billion. That's not good. And unfunded liability of 74.9 billion. Bills they know they won't be able to pay. They just don't have the funding for it. There's no projected funding for it. They're screwed. It's per person unfunded liability was $16,281, and it's unfunded liability as a percent of the gross state product is 31%, 15th worst in the country. Hold on. Their percent of the the state product that's unfunded liability is 31%. That means that if you look at everything they produce in a year and then compare that to their uh, their unfunded liabilities, and the unfunded liabilities represent 30% percent roughly of everything they produce in a single year that's bad here's where it gets interesting though california for the record has the largest liabilities it has liabilities of 1.1 trillion followed by new york at 490 billion ohio at 433 billion and texas at 427 billion and illinois at 378 billion okay now that doesn't necessarily mean that Texas is going broke because if you have big liabilities but you have big income and big assets, they offset. But that's not good for Texas either. All right, those aren't unfunded liabilities; those are just total liabilities. All right, but you notice that all of a sudden we've talked about one state, and then we're going to add New York, Ohio, Texas, and Illinois to it. Okay, and Illinois makes the the overall list, but those other states don't. Let's. Let's look at another one um, to start getting a feeling for this. Alaska is number five. Alaska, Mississippi, and New Hampshire all have a funded ratio of 30%. In Alaska state pension plan, assets are $10.2 billion. Liabilities are $34 billion. So that means that they have $10 billion in the fund, and they, have, they owe $34 billion out. Okay? And the unfunded liability is $23.7 billion. For the record, Wisconsin is the most well-funded state in the country with 57% funded ratio. The most well-funded state in the country is 57% funded. Well, the other way to look at that is they're 43% under instead of 70% under. Okay, Followed by North Carolina with 54% funding, South Dakota with 52% funding, and Tennessee with 50% funding, and Washington with 49% funding. This is what happens. If you read this whole article, sooner or later you realize that, like, when it comes down to it, they mention like almost every single state. Every single state. So it's like, this is just the worst based on this criteria for this one issue. So it's not, can Mississippi pay its bills? It's just, can Mississippi pay its fund, its pension liabilities? That's the only thing this is looking at. And the answer is, sooner or later, no. And when you look at it, you know, overall, the majority of states, the answer is sooner or later, no. 
compounding that, if we look at counties, you'll find that almost you know every major county in the United States, you know every county that has a, a significantly sized city uh, within it, you know a city of greater than a hundred thousand people is in the same boat, and every city is in the same boat. Cities with greater than a population of a hundred thousand. I don't have hard numbers on that. I can just tell you I've looked at enough of them to tell you the majority are. So you have cities, counties, and states that all have just one problem that literally can sink the entire USS of A. Because if all of these people start to have their pensions go away, what does that do to a large spending demographic of retired folks? And what does it do to the confidence of the person that's 40 years old? Not to mention our federal government is on a track record to destroy the entire economy anyway. What I'm trying to point out to you is how many landmines there are in the, in, in the economies as a whole. Yeah, Detroit goes bankrupt. Stockton, South Carolina goes bankrupt. Whatever. You know, this is one city here and one city there, and everybody knew Detroit was bankrupt. But what happens when Chicago's bankrupt? What happens when, you know, Atlanta's bankrupt? What happens when Boston's bankrupt? And these cities are going to go sooner or later. And it doesn't have to be all of them. It's just to be one. When one happens, one big one happens, one that people are like, that should have happened, people are going to start going, well, how did that happen? What did that? And it's like pulling a thread. And when we pull a thread on this towel, it's going to unravel fast. And the, you know, the shifts are going to be massive. Um, my son's uncle and aunt were just here. Now, these are an uncle and aunt from his, his birth father uh, who's deceased, and, and they're like the only family Matthew has left from that side of the family. And they're just great people. And this guy was in the probation parole industry, or, you know, parole, he was a parole officer for 35 years and retired a few years ago. And, you know, this is a guy that worked in the system his whole life. But, uh, and he's from New York, upstate New York. But he's in no way a typical New York liberal. He's an upstate New Yorker, which are generally conservative to libertarian leaning. And this, this guy's more of a conservative, more of a conventional conservative. And, He's living on his pension, and he knows it's borrowed time. He and his wife is going to eventually retire. I think six more years, and he's told her, you know, we need to have plans financially because we can't depend on this being here. Now he's of the mind that they'll get something, but there'll be major changes, major reductions in what you're getting, including reductions on the benefits side, and that's that's. Probably most likely. That's probably most likely. The danger in some of these northern heavily unionized areas, though, is that the unions will hold out long enough to blow the systems up to where instead of getting something, you might get nothing or a lot less, if that makes sense. So here you go. I'll have a link to this article in today's show notes. But uh, the bigger story is that almost every state gets a mention as you read through the entire article. All right, my next story, we're going to file under the lines of has common sense left the country? And the answer is yes. This one will speak for itself. I'll be back after I play this news report for you on something that doesn't make any sense at all in any world except the mind of a nanny state liberal. And even there, I don't think most nanny state liberals would even think this one makes sense. 
Virginia Beach Middle School students face an expulsion hearing today. The school suspended them for possession, handling, and use of a firearm, but that so-called firearm was an airsoft gun. And when Senator Sides' Andy Fox heard the gun wasn't in school, he began asking questions about this, Andy. Nicole and Tom, this is a story of whether the Virginia Beach City Public School System is overreaching. The guns weren't in school, on the bus. According to the students, they weren't even at the bus stop. For them, this is a case of zero tolerance reaching to your private property. Oh, I thought it was ridiculous. Solangio Caraballo thinks it ridiculous. The Virginia Beach City Public School System suspended her 13-year-old son, Khalid, and his friend, Aiden Clark, because they were firing this spring-driven airsoft gun on the Caraballo's posted private property. Including my son. He's private property to me. He's my property, not the school's property, until he is in their school and on their school bus. Or even at, at the bus stop. At the very least, at the bus stop. Right. Khalid and Aiden aren't only suspended, but recommended expelled for possession, handling, and use of a firearm. So Khalid and Aiden are over there in the yard taking target practice with the airsoft gun, waiting for the school bus. And this is the school bus stop, 70 yards away. It all began with this 911 call September 9th. A neighbor sees Khalid doing this in his front yard. Who is he pointing the gun at? Um, it seems to be like a tree. He had, he, it looks like, um, like almost like he had a target or something. The tree right in front of his yard. Taking target practice like this. The caller also knew the gun was not real and said so. It's not a real one, first of all. The airsoft guns are designed to be non-lethal with plastic pellets, not copper BBs. I want to see if it hurts, okay? So now, right there. That hurt. Yeah, you're close. Right here. It hurt right here. There's a little welt right here. That's what we're talking about. Ironically, the very next day, that 911 caller's son was playing with Khalid and Aiden in the Caraballo's front yard. We seen the bus. Did you take the airsoft gun to the bus stop? No. Did you take it to school? No. Aiden admits shooting the caller's son in the arm, and Khalid admits shooting another friend in the back during an airsoft gun war on the private property. He knew that we had the airsoft guns. He knew that we were playing with them. He knew that people were getting shot, and we were shooting at the tree. And the, But he still came, and then even after he was shot, he still played. Larkspur Middle School principal Matthew Delaney claims his investigation found the children were firing pellet guns at each other and at people near the bus stop. A child was only 10 feet from the bus stop and ran from the shots being fired but was still hit. Delaney also notes the 911 caller's son that he was shot in the arm and head. But that mother never mentioned anything to us about her son being shot in the head. Khalid insists all the shots fired were on his private property, not at the bus stop, involving children who wanted to be there. Why do you think it's unfair? Uh, because we were in our yard, and this had nothing to do with school. I didn't have any of this at the school at any time. The city code isn't clear. goes back and forth. It reads, no person shall discharge any firearm, spring-propelled rifle or pistol within 150 yards of any building. Then reads, no person shall use a pneumatic gun except at approved shooting ranges or within private property. That's exactly my point. It is private property. However, the code also requires shooting with permission of the owner. He knew. He Mom knew is the owner. And she did not give her son Khalid permission to fire the guns. He disobeyed. And you can tell mom's still upset. You know, he disobeyed me. So that's 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 home. That's a home issue. You know, that's home. 
It's not a home issue because he won't be doing it again. And like he said, he will not do this ever again. Virginia Beach police say they do not proactively seek out to enforce this code unless the juveniles are not exercising reasonable care. Reasonable care is defined as the gun is discharged in a manner so the projectile is contained on the property by a fence or backstop, like this fence, or the backstop that catches Khalid's pellets during target practice. What about intent? Did Khalid maliciously intend to do wrong? Would you do the same thing? No. Why? Because it got me in trouble. Did you think it would get you in trouble when you were doing it? No, sir. Solangio Caraballo was not at home when the gun incident occurred. Want to make that clear. She was taking her younger son to head start. Her 16-year-old daughter was watching Khalid when this occurred. We are told a final decision on expulsion, we're expecting it today, was delayed until tomorrow morning. Go to wavy.com to see a full statement from the school principal, statement from police, and hear the full 911 call. I'm Andy Fox, 10 on your side. Okay, let's just talk about a few of the reasons that this is mind-numbing stupidity. Number one, it does appear to me anyway that the children were on their own property. Whether or not mom said it was okay or not, if the city police department will say, well, you didn't have permission and be an ass about it and, and pursue charge, that's one thing, but they're not doing that. And whether or not the city thinks it's good or not doesn't have anything to do with whether or not the school should have shit to say about it. I'll put it to you this way. Let's say that a kid legitimately breaks the law uh, at 6 o'clock in the evening in a way that has absolutely positively nothing to do with school property or school time. Let's say he and a kid uh, across the street from him are getting into a fight. He walks over uh, onto the other kid's property, punches him in the face. Legitimate case of assault. Uh, what does the school have to do with that? Absolutely nothing. And they wouldn't. Because it's a gun, we have to. That's, that's the mind of these idiots. Secondly, I have to tell you, I would be really tempted to backhand slap the son of a bitch that keeps referring to an airsoft gun as a firearm. It is not a freaking firearm. And anybody too stupid to know the difference between airsoft pellet gun and firearm should not have anything to do with educating our children. You're too stupid to be trusted to teach children that 2 plus 2 is 4 if you're too stupid to know that plastic pellet gun does not equal freaking firearm. <sighs> zero tolerance, my ass. You know what it's time for? I'll tell you what it's time for. It is time for zero tolerance. Zero tolerance from us. And, and I'm not saying we need to do jack shit about this. This is up to people in Virginia Beach, Virginia, to do something about it. This is a school issue, a school board level issue. It's time, though, if you live where this shit happens, you go freaking door to door. Hey, Tom, do you know what they're doing? Yeah, next meeting's this day. Let's go show them some zero freaking tolerance. Hey, Tammy, did you hear about this? Yeah, let's go. And... 200, 300, 400 parents going down there. You're all out. You're done. You're done in the next election. If you don't re reverse this, we're tired of it. We have now reached a point of zero tolerance. We now have zero tolerance for your ignorance and stupidity. 
That's what needs to happen. That's the only thing these ass clowns are ever going to understand. The people that make these decisions at the political level are not the principals, though the principal clearly is an ass, okay? Clearly an ass. Told you this was going to ruin my mood. But it's the school board that enables this shit. And the school board could step in at any time and go, that's not what we meant. That's, no, did he bring it to school? No, did he bring it to the bus stop? I, and the, the, the school's own claim within 10 feet of the bus stop. Okay, that means it wasn't the bus stop, even if we believe them, and I don't. Zero tolerance is about, it, we, what we need to do is flip it. We need to be the ones with zero tolerance. Zero tolerance for people abusing their authority and using no common sense with their authority. Zero tolerance for a child being suspended for gluing a freaking six-inch army man molded thing like you played with, you know, like World War II army man to a hat. That happened. Zero tolerance for a child, a deaf child, being asked to change his name because his name was Hunter and the sign looked like a gun for his name. Zero tolerance for all of this. And I got to tell you, this really isn't the kind of thing that I can say, let's rally the troops and let's blitzkrieg them on the phone or something like that. This isn't even a city issue. This is a local school board issue. But what we need is sentinels everywhere. Sentinels everywhere that it, it, you don't need money to fight this. You just need bodies. You just need bodies. If 400 parents from a school district show up at a school board meeting when there's usually three, and they're all pissed off, and they're all like, we're not doing this, They'll listen. And if they don't listen, then all of those parents that showed up that generally don't even vote will feel like, you know what? They just smacked us in the face. They wiped their noses with our concerns. They wiped their ass with our concerns. You know what? I think, I think I'll show up and vote this jackass next, out next time around. We can't do much with elections at the federal level. And, and honestly, in some ways, very little at the state level. But folks, the county, The school board, the city, town councils, man, we can make a difference there. It only takes one pissed off person with a big enough mouth to get enough other people pissed off to change things at that level. If this happens where you are, don't rely on email and phone. Go just start walking up and down your street. Do you hear about this? Next meeting's this day. Can, can, can you come and, and, and just say that we don't want this? Please appreciate that. Again. Hey, I'm going to tell everybody, could you help out? you have some time? Could you just knock on 10 doors? Just take those next 10 doors and I'll do all the rest? Great. That's how you end this shit. God, I'd like to just backhand this principle, though. Firearm. Let's do something different before I snap a complete gasket. Let's talk about an email that in a roundabout way is related. This comes from Kareem. Kareem says, Jack, I have a child that's nearly five years old, and I've been wondering when would be the best age to start using Airsoft to teach safe firearms handling as well as basic marksmanship. What are your thoughts? Note I intend to have Frank Sharp teach firearm safety to my children as well, and he does offer that service as well. You know, I didn't know that Frank had like classes specifically for kids. I think that's awesome. I think maybe I remember him mentioning that, but if you want your kids to get great training, man, Frank Sharp is the man. Anyway, um, age, 
I think around five is appropriate. Now, here's some things that we'll talk about that relate to the story and how to avoid stories like this in the future. Until enough people start knocking on doors and, and getting rid of clowns at the local level, we have to worry about crap like this occurring. Starting at five is a great way to prevent this type of crap from occurring. The biggest mistake I see that these children made is that they were doing this in their front yard versus their backyard. Probably in case the bus showed up early so they could put their stuff down and haul ass over there and get on the bus. That would be my guess. Um, I would say that if you live in suburbia and you want to play with airsoft guns, do it in your backyard. A fence in an area with a good backstop. Five, don't give them a gun and let them go play with it. Don't let them go unsupervised at all at five years of old age. They're going to shoot themselves in the face, or they're going to shoot their friend in the face, or something like that. By the way, when the guy said it hurt when the kid shot him, he shot him in the hand from about six feet away, which generally, if you play airsoft as a as a game, is too close for what's known as rules of engagement safety. Um, just throwing that aside in there. But when you start a young person on airsoft, you should teach them, we don't shoot at each other. We don't shoot at each other yet. There's a game where this can be done, and a five-year-old doesn't even need to know about it yet. But later on, as they get a little older, they can start to know that game exists. Okay, so when they're about six or seven, you start saying, you know, there is a game that people play with this, with safety equipment in, in the right areas, and it's probably not a backyard in suburbia that's a good place to do this. But if you continue to show responsibility, if you'd like to play that game, eventually we can work with some other people to do that, and it's pretty cool. But there's certain rules there, and we have to keep working on the rules here. Five or six, I'd let a five or six-year-old shoot an airsoft gun. They're going to like it. But I'm going to control that. I'm going to control that tool. I'm not going to leave it in their hands unsupervised ever. I'm not going to let them be able to shoot their brother with it. I'm not going to let the older brother, until I really know he's not going to shoot the little brother, have it either. I mean, and I would, how will it, it's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. In fact, to make the point, let's say I had an eight year old that shot a six year old brother with an airsoft gun. I wouldn't just take it away and put it up on the shelf. I would take it. We're going to come outside. I'd be real calm too. This is how I'd handle this. Take it outside right here in the garage and we're going to set it up on dad's workbench. And then I would produce my six pound sledgehammer and calmly I would beat it into little tiny useless pieces. Put it into a gallon Ziploc bag, zip it up, and hand it back. Say, there you go. There's your gun. This is what happens when we don't listen and we do things that aren't safe and we do things that are wrong. Bet you it would never happen again. Okay. The thing is, people do make mistakes with firearms, and if you're going to make it, it's better to make it with something that shoots a plastic pellet than a lethal bullet. In other words, it's better to do it with a simulated firearm rather than a firearm principal idiot. Anyway, so I think five years old is fine, and I would I would take a very gentle progression. I would say, we're going to do this, and I'd set up some tin cans or something close enough that the kiddo could hit them, and, and I would shoot that. And I would tell you that at that age, too, um, you can like encourage proper behavior with things that shoot like the Nerf darts and stuff like that as well. And those can be shot indoors safely, and you can shoot your brother with a Nerf dart. You can shoot your, your brother with one of those little Nerf ring things and stuff like that. You can shoot dad with dad, and dad will shoot you with it. And that's fun, and we start to create a separation. There's different levels and layers of things that are like guns or guns. I would say that I would have most children shooting firearms under my care by seven or eight years of age. I'd have them on 22s. 
in a totally different scenario. This is a controlled brain. And it, here's the thing that people don't realize. If kids go through these progressions with toy guns that don't shoot anything, that are just you know like little cap guns and stuff, to airsoft-type guns and Nerf guns and things like that, then to BBs and pellet guns and actual firearms, in their mind they're understanding this progression of lethality and risk and danger. And it's, it's the way you build character in young shooters. Now, I grew up, we had toy guns as long as I could remember. And we used to play guns. That's what we called it. It was like tag with guns. And we would, this is before airsoft and paintball existed. And we would run around in the woods and like you'd see somebody and go, bang, you're dead. And if you got the drop on them, they'd stand there and count out loud to ten with their eyes closed while everybody hauled ass. And sometimes we had teams and sometimes it was all for one. And, you know, not long after that, my grandfather, I was probably about eight years old, got me a BB gun, one of the old daisies at Cock one time. I wasn't a Red Rider, but kind of like that. And um, after about three or four weeks of kind of keeping his eye on me, we lived in an apartment complex where, like, out he, well, he did, that out his back door was swamp and we could shoot right there. He let me walk down the road a little bit and shoot in the creek. Now, it could still be seen from the window, and it took a while before I was trusted with that any further. By the time I was 12 or 13 years old, I was running around the Florida swamps with BB guns. By the time I was 13 uh, and moved back to Pennsylvania, I was out with 22s. Now, most people wouldn't let a 13-year-old run around with a 22. I can tell you that I was extremely safe and extremely proficient with that rifle. I brought a lot of food home for the family with that rifle during hunting season. I shot a lot of groundhogs and other varmints for neighbors, and nobody worried about the way that I conducted myself with that gun. But it's because I went through that type of tutelage from parents, from uncles, and with an expectation that we treat different things different ways. A .22 is not a pellet gun. A pellet gun is not an airsoft gun. An airsoft gun is not like a Nerf gun. And a Nerf gun is not like a toy gun, a complete toy that doesn't do anything. These things change as you progress forward. This makes it real for a young person. So five... I'd have them shooting already. I wouldn't post pictures to, pay, pictures to Facebook with AR-style uh, airsoft guns. So you should be able to. But see, this is part of the thing. Understand the world we live in today. And, and do things with some common sense on our end to avoid the conflict when we can. But when the conflict shows up, start knocking on doors. This has to be shut down at the local level, folks. Let's take another one. All right, let's... Uh, Let's move on to a question that's permaculture-based, and we'll lower my blood pressure even further. Jack, can you explain better swelling or creating swales to us? The swales I've seen in yours and other pictures and videos seem large, large in the sense that in order to do it, one would need heavy equipment or at least a backhoe. If I were just a rototill on contour, would that create a sufficient break in the earth to slow the water that moves downhill? I know rototilling is not the way to garden, but because of a bad back, I would use a rototilling to dig and was thinking of digging swales on contour, but the rototiller is seen in someone else's uh, video on YouTube. But those were uh, wide and deep. How small, shallow, wide can they be and still be effective? Your thoughts, as always, would be appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Put me down as another one of your changed life stories. Thanks, Jim. All right, Jim, um, here's the deal. When, the reason you see big swales is in general, when we start thinking about earthworks, swales are tree-growing systems. They're designed to grow large forest systems. 
And generally, the swale size is based on the equipment that puts it in. You bring in a 25-ton excavator, you end up with a, a six-foot-wide, three-foot-deep swale. You bring in a, a 12,000-pound excavator, or, a 12, or I'm sorry, a 12-ton excavator, and you're more in the four-by-one-and-a-half world. You bring in a little machine like a Mini-X, and you're putting in swales that are a couple feet wide and, you know, a foot deep. And all of them work. It's a matter of... How many do you have to put in to get the same effect, or how much of an effect do you get? Either or. So can you put in a one-foot-wide by one-foot-deep trench and call it a swale? Uh, you probably wouldn't because it's not going to be structurally sound. We need to go around two-foot-wide to do a one-foot-deep swale and get enough of a shape to it that it'll hold, and it won't just be a cut into the ground. Can you do a one foot wide by six inch deep swale? Sure you could. It just won't do a whole lot for you. But if you did a lot of them, it would. It would put a lot of texture in the landscape. Now your idea with a rototiller, will this work? Yes. And I want to say something. I do not hate rototilling as a technology. I hate rototilling as a, I do this every year to the same garden technology because it destroys your land. And it compacts the soil. If the tiller can get down six to eight inches, what it does is compact all soil about six inches below that. Right? So tillers are not bad. We used a tiller here when we put our gardens in. We used it to cut the paths in, which are basically shallow swales. That should tell you I think the idea is valid. Here's how I would do it. I would mark out your contours, and I would cut that with that tiller about two feet wide. Right, So maybe two or three or four passes to do this along that contour line. And I would come back and shovel the dirt out to the downhill side, and I would put in a sill somewhere on one end or the center of that where the, there is no berm, and you compact the soil for at least a meter so there's a place for the water to get out of the ditch. The berm doesn't hold the water in. The ditch does. I've got that swale model. I really need to do a quick video for you guys. I'll get that done this week because so I think that'll help people a lot. The berm absorbs water. It doesn't hold it. The ditch does the holding, and the sill discharges it. You can make swales of any size that you want, but think about it this way. If I make a one-foot uh, deep, Two and a half, three foot wide swale. It's a pretty significant swale, but it's, that's a swale we're going to roll a wheelbarrow through, or maybe a small mower could drive down it, right? Um, it can hold quite a bit of water. If I make a six foot wide, three foot deep swale, it can hold a lot more water and infiltrate a lot more water. If I make a little bitty hand dug swale, you know, 18 inches to two feet wide by six to eight inches deep, you know, something like a little footpath type thing, it works. It works at any level. But what you're going to grow with it and how effective it is going to be is the issue. And the reality is that the small-scale swale development like that is something that works very, very well on small scape designs. And, tr you know, a few trees here and a few trees there, kind of a forest gardening type of thing, works great. If you want to put in a large forest, you know, a hundred trees, a thousand trees, it makes sense to bring heavy equipment in to do it. It can just do it faster and better uh, to greater long-term effect. But you don't have to. It does work at any level. It's just how much does it work. But think about it this way. 
if over an area that you would generally infiltrate with one six by three swale, if you put in ten two to three foot by ones, they would hold as much or more water. And you get a very textured landscape. And it might be worth experimenting with. Um, but you're going to need more than one. You're going to need at least two or three in a series to really get much effect, especially as you scale them down. Even big swales. Generally a big swale, there's another swale down downgrade from there somewhere. So it's certainly worth doing. It certainly has been done, and it's been done with pretty good effect. Now, the way you described it really wasn't like rototilling and digging it out. You just described like running the rotor till on contour, right? Um, you're closer to key line plowing now. So you're not, if you're not digging it out, you're just breaking the soil on contour, it will infiltrate water. And the really, the way that you want to do that is you stay on contour, you stay on contour, you stay on contour as you get toward the end of one line, you come off contour just a little bit, and then you go the opposite direction, off contour, back on the contour, and you work it back and forth kind of like a zigzag. But it's almost perfectly on contour 99% of the time, and it comes off just enough to drop down to the next uh, next layer in a key line plow. I've never seen anybody do that with a rotor tiller. It doesn't seem like it would work as well, but it does seem like it would work. Uh, it might be a way to establish pasture, but it would be a lot of work with a rotor tiller and a lot less work with a plow. Because a plow just done. Roller tiller, right? So um, I don't know that I would try a key line plow technique with a with a tiller. But I, I got to tell you, there's places I've looked at and went, instead of all this big scale crap, maybe I should just take the tiller and do the very thing you're asking about. Um, so that tells you that I don't have a negative opinion of it. But if you want a good effect, I would try to make your swales between two and a half to three feet wide. And about a foot deep. And I think if you do that, you know, even 10 inches deep, and get your berm on the downhill side, you get a pretty daggone good effect. But try this. Get whatever means of contour you're going to use, like a, 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 an A-frame level or a laser level, and stake out all the contours that you're gonna, you think you're going to use. And look at it. And think about what it'll look like. And move it around and change it. And before you put that first one in, make damn sure you know what your, your end is in mind. So that you don't have to live with something you're like, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Because swales are pretty easy to make. They're kind of a pain in the ass to put back, especially if you do them by hand. Uh, but I would not fault you for doing what you're asking about. Well, let's talk a little bit about my state of Texas and the possibility of a Texas secession at some point. And, uh, you know, there's a, a strong secessionist movement, both a radical one and a logical one here. Um There are some people that are really out there that think that not only should Texas secede, but we should take back the original republic, which would include parts of New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, and Montana. And I don't think that's reasonable. Um, and then there's people that just think we should secede and just be our own nation. Like the Republic of Texas, get out if you don't like it and tell the federal government to flip off. And then there's the majority of people in this state that are liberty-oriented, that I think have a totally different view. And this article I'm going to share with you starts to show you that view. And that is, well, we don't need to secede. We just need to wait. And when this thing falls apart, we'll just kind of stand up and take over, and they won't have any time to deal with us because they're screwed. And I, I think you're starting to see that even in some fairly high-level governmental people in this state. 
Let me read this to you. Texas official state actively preparing to become an independent nation. This is on uh, the D.C. clothesline, which is just a blog, an independent blogger. So, But the, the reporting is accurate statements. I, I vetted that out. So here we go. Barry Smitherson, head of the powerful Texas Railroad Commission. Let me just say something about that. Um, there's places where the railroad commissioner is not a big deal. In this state, railroad commissioner has a lot of authority over a lot of issues that aren't generally just rail. Uh, which overall transportation, part of the committee that, that runs transportation for the whole state, has a say in things that, again, aren't just rail-oriented. So it is how he's right with that. Uh, he's seeking to be the state's next attorney general, made waves last week with comments about economic collapse, energy policy in the future. However, those things only led up to a much bigger statement. Quote, We have made great progress in becoming an independent nation, an island nation, if you will, and I don't think we want to continue down that path. And I think we want to continue down that path. So that if the rest of the country falls apart, Texas can operate as a standalone entity with energy, food, water, and roads as if we were a closed-loop system. In an interview with WND, Smitherson added that Texas is, quote, uniquely situated because we have energy resources, fossil and otherwise, and our own independent electrical grid, end quote. Quote, that was one of my goals at the Utility Commission, and it is one of my goals currently as chairman of the Railroad Commission, end quote, Smitherson said. Quote, that is why I stress so vehemently oil and gas production, permitting turnaround times, and everything that enables the industry to produce as much as it can, as quickly as it can, end quote. Smitherson said that Texas has, quote, been very strong leading the charge against the Obama administration, end quote. Though Smitherson did not use the term secession, it seems clear that Texas is at least making preparations so that it can stand should other states around it fall. I think this is a wise thing. They see the real problems coming and are seeking to deal with them at the state level rather than allow the problems to overtake them. Quote, we have made great progress in becoming an independent nation, an island nation, if you will, and I think we want to continue down that path so that the rest of the country falls apart. Texas can operate as a standalone entity with energy, food, water, and roads as if we were a closed-loop system. So he repeats that quote, and that's pretty telling. That's really not easy to misunderstand what the guy's saying. I have at least one question regarding Texas. How is Texas dealing with their southern border and influx of illegals pouring into the state? That just seems to be as much a threat as other things Mr. Smith has mentioned in the interview. That's a good point. Let me tell you what Texas is doing about the immigration issue. Very little to nothing because it's currently under the control of the federal government. Um, and Rick Perry doesn't have the balls to do anything about it beyond what the federal government's doing. He does a lot of bitching to the federal government. He talks a lot about it, but he's... Rick Perry is the is a is a coddler of illegal immigrants into this state, but I think if you get to the point where the state is seceding, Rick Perry is not not the governor at that point. He's just not. I don't think Rick Perry is the governor of the state of Texas after the next election. I don't know who's going to be, but I don't think it's Rick Perry. I think he's I think he is uh, he's finally being seen for the uh, the the piece of crap that he is. I'll just put it to you that way. He's doing some things I approve of, but in the end. He's a political piece of crap, and uh, I, I'd like to see him replaced. I just don't know that we're going to replace him with anything that much better right now. Um, so as far as how Texas would deal with the southern border issue, as a sovereign nation, you have a right to defend your borders. Unfortunately, under a federal republic, the defense of your borders goes first to the federal government. 
And we've come so far from our Constitution. If the governor did do something like activate the National Guard and seal off the southern border, um, he, he would probably end up being immediately apprehended by federal authorities for doing so. So I don't know that it's a reasonable thing to have him do. But, you know, there's always a way. You could activate the National Guard for a series of drills along the border, and should they find anybody, they would be told that, you know, they don't belong there. You need to just kind of hang on to them and call Border Patrol and hand them over, and then whatever Border Patrol does is their business. At least it might start to do something. I think he could do that, and I don't think he has the cojones to do it. But I think we could solve that problem. And I don't know that it's the problem that a lot of people think that it is. Um As a libertarian, I'm not opposed to you coming to my country. I'm opposed to you coming to my country and then having me pay for you. Okay, that's that's the problem. And and in the illegal alien debate, there's two sides and both are right. One side says these people come here to work and for better opportunity and they're doing jobs Americans don't want to do. Those people are correct. Then there's the other side that says, but a lot of them come here, figure out the system, and lay on their ass and crap out babies and live on welfare their entire life. And those people are correct. And we have both types of people coming here. So I have a solution to the problem. It doesn't involve turning the southern border into the new Berlin Wall. It simply involves taking the tit that they suck and cauterizing it shut, and you don't get none. If you're in this country legally or illegally from another nation, you do not qualify for any social assistance whatsoever. None. You are on your own. You chose to come here. You are not our burden. You don't get free health care. You don't get Medicaid. You don't get welfare. You don't get food stamps. But the children, you brought your child here. Now, I want to expand this to you. Don't Nobody gets this crap that you let private organizations decide who actually is in need. And the truly disabled, we can have a program for those. Like people that legitimately can't function. Like they will, they will literally sit there and die if we don't help them. Not by choice, but because they have a physical or mental impairment. Society taking care of those people I have no problem with. Everybody else, can you get up? Yeah, can you walk? Yeah, can you pick garbage up off the street? Oh, my back hurts. Can you do it? Yeah, you can get a job. No, I don't want to. Well, fine, starve. I'll do it for everybody. But I think it's completely reasonable that we at least say, you chose to come here from another country, legally or illegally. You get nothing. You are on your own. What about my kids? Hopefully by the time they're adults and they, they're, you know, if they're recognized as citizens, they don't need anything because you didn't get anything. So they'll learn how to do. And yes, I know it will piss off some of you that are diehard Republicans. The majority of the people, especially that come here from Mexico and Guatemala and El Salvador and all across the southern border, come here and work their asses off. Most of them work harder than the average American in conditions that we will not work in. They do. But there's so many coming that if 20% are sucking a tit that's already gone gangrene, they're, they're dragging the ship down. So, again, we don't need to stop people from coming. What we need to do is stop people from taking. You want to come here and produce? God bless you for it. Because we need some people that will come here and produce. Because we have an entire generation of Americans that don't want to produce a damn thing and want to live on the tit themselves, either society's tit or continue to live off their parents. 
And having some people alongside them saying, this is what work looks like. If it's not going to be their parents, if it has to be somebody from another nation, I'm okay with that. So how do we solve that problem? No problem at all. You're trying to run, you know, drug cartel with guns across the border. We're our own nation. We shoot your ass. You're dead. You lie in the desert. You're not a problem. Everybody else, you want to come here? Fine. Come on. We've got a thriving new country if we do this thing eventually. Bring it on. We got lots of room. This state has lots of room for people. No problem. I'm not saying free and open borders for all, but, you know, pretty much, yeah. Know who you are? You want to get in? Let's make it easy. But you don't get nothing. You don't get in-state tuition for your kids. Unless you've lived here for 20 years and paid taxes for 20 years, whatever taxes remain, and made a contribution. You don't come here today, throw your kids in our school system tomorrow at no expense to you. You don't do that. It doesn't work that way. And the problem pretty much solves itself if you cut off the tit. Um, the rest of the uh, article is kind of political. I'll leave it to you. But it's clear that the people running the state of Texas, um, I want to say, first of all, I don't think they're a bunch of good guys. I really don't. I think politicians in general are people that like power. And that generally means a person is not a good person. I'm sorry. Now, other people get into politics because they don't want power, but they feel somebody has to. Yeah, and most of them, if they're successful, get converted by a system that's designed to convert them. But most people that even go in, they want to do something, right? They don't want to repeal. They want to enact. So politicians are politicians. But I think the people in this state at least know how to do math. And they're just looking at the, the economics of the situation and going, Yeah, this is not good for our future. And at some point, the best decision for us might be to just step aside and say, you know what, we, we've got our own stuff taken care of. You worry about the other 49 states, we're done. And that it might become at a time when it's not a big, giant, like, conflict. It's like what happened with the Ukraine and Lithuania in the Soviet Union, Georgia, where they just fell away. They didn't fight a war of independence. They were kind of cut loose. Like, you're on your own now. Bye. We can't afford you anymore. This this nation's heading for that. Now, the, the, the conflict arises that because Texas is so rich in resources that the feds would want to hang on to Texas. But would they have the strength to do so? I mean, Texas isn't exactly a tiny military force, guys. Really not. Um... And it would be some interesting things you'd have to figure out. What happens if you're in Texas in a military station at Fort Hood, in, not in the Guard or not in the Reserve, but the active army under the command of the president and the nation of Texas secedes? What does Texas do with you? Do they say that all federal assets can just roll out? You don't roll out by a certain time, we're taking it. You can leave or stay if you're a soldier in the military. It's up to you whether you want to leave or stay. You can be part of the new republic. Or you can go back to the crumbling empire. It's up to you. By the way, the crumbling empire will call you treasonous uh, if you side with us. And they might order you executed. We don't know. It, would be, it wouldn't be as clean as some make it out to be. But it is definitely possible. And if I were going to be in any state that had this happen, this is the one I would want to be in. There's some other states I think that maybe can pull it off. But this is... This state 
has the greatest ability to pull it off. And I would say the state with the second greatest ability to pull it off, other than the electrical grid thing, is probably, and people are going to be shocked by this one, Florida. Florida. It's a peninsula, folks. It has ports out the ass. It can bring in materials, and it has a huge, huge budget. It really does. It's not that they're being really smart with it, but if they, they got into a hard position and just said, you know what, we're cutting certain things, and we're stepping out on our own, and you're stuck, but this is the best we can do, um, Florida could do fairly well for itself as, as, a, as a nation. You know, and it might kind of look north and go, Atlanta sucks, but Georgia as a whole, and maybe, or I don't know, you know, maybe looking a little bit to the east for some kind of an alliance. Um, you could see, you know, three or four states in that southeast, along with Florida, uh, kind of fall off as a, as a mini republic. I'm not saying these things are going to happen. I'm saying that if this nation bankrupts itself, and it damn sure seems like it's the only plan that we have, These are the types of things that can occur. We're not talking about recessions here. We're talking about a crumbling economy. And uh, I don't know. It's one of those things we're going to have to just wait and see. But, yeah, if I want to be somewhere when it happens, this is the place I want to be. Here's an interesting question, almost a riddle. Is there any problem that arises with libertarianism within the Constitution? I don't think that there is, and I believe that the Constitution was actually written to support it, but I just want to hear your thoughts and see if you know of any issues that could arise within the original Constitution. Also, what current laws wouldn't work with libertarianism? Uh, the last one's easy, most of them. Most current laws would not work with libertarianism. The answer to the question, is there a problem between libertarian and the Constitution? The answer is yes and no. Let's start out with what libertarianism is. Libertarianism is a philosophy. And as a philosophy, like most, it comes in gradients. There are serious minarchist libertarians, right, that are just at the edge of pure anarchism, no state whatsoever. Most libertarians fall somewhere in the minarchist range, which means minimal government, and are backed off of that anarchistic, there's no need, no role, no purpose for a state. I would say in practice that's who I am. In, 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 in my heart, I would love there to be no state. And I think we could get there, but if I could push a button and make it happen tomorrow, I wouldn't do it. Okay? Because I don't even if I did, it would be death and destruction throughout the entire world. Because the society is too managed. And if I could push a button that took us from where we are to a full minarchist state in 10 years, 10% per year, I think there'd be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth. There'd be some harm and misery in it, but would be worth the cost. So I'd push that button. If it was 5% over 20 years, and it was guaranteed, all I gotta, doesn't matter how. Just If you push this button, Jack, we'll get there. Would you push the button? I would. If that led to an anarchist society in 20 years, would I push the button? I, I think I would. I think I would. But if it was, that would have to be a controlled dissent. Right, You can't just flip that switch. So that's what we first got to understand is what libertarianism is because many people when they hear libertarian immediately think, well, that's anarchy. No, anarchy is anarchy. Libertarian is libertarian. Libertarian basically is this in a nutshell. The government should do nothing 
except protect the rights of citizens from other citizens who violate their rights. That's it. So if there's a law, there has to be a victim. So if I want to smoke pot, that's, that's not a crime in a libertarian society. It's not that it's a good thing to do. It's just not a crime. Who have I harmed? I've harmed myself, if at all, and that's my right. I have a right to harm myself. Now, if a person gets a gun and makes you smoke pot, then there's a victim. Okay. If a man pays a woman for sex, I think that's morally reprehensible. I don't think that it should occur. Uh, unlike pot where I'm like, I don't smoke pot, but if you do, I don't care. I actually think that's a disgusting thing, that a man pays a woman for sex and that a woman sells her body for sex. But that's that's my morality. And I don't in a, in a libertarian society, I don't get to enforce my morality on you. And is the woman consenting? Is the man consenting? God, I wish you guys wouldn't do that, but... Right? Okay, now, man forces a woman to have sex. Well, that's rape. That's a crime. We have a place called prison for you. See, it's very, very simple. Now, so the whole thing with does the Constitution have a problem with... Would libertarians have a problem with the Constitution? Yes. Yes. If we followed the Constitution to the letter... Our society would be much more libertarian than it is if we actually followed the Constitution. The first thing would happen is, you know, 25,000 gun laws would be repealed that fast. And many other things that occur, including many social welfare programs, would evaporate. By the Constitution, many of these things should not be here. Just because you can get justices to say it's okay doesn't mean it's true, right? If the Supreme Court comes out and says, Congress has passed a law, This is if you walk up on top of a building and drop a 16-pound bowling ball, it will no longer fall to the ground. It will float in midair. And that law has been bequeathed, and we find it constitutional, and therefore it stands. It won't matter. It won't, if you drop the ball, it will fall. So understand that when we have laws that have been ruled constitutional, it doesn't mean that they're constitutional. It means by the opinion of certain people they're constitutional. The issue with the Constitution is it takes the ability to make that determination away from the people and grants it to people like a court and a Congress and a president. And the court not being elected has no consequence to their response. That was designed to make them impartial. But of course, since the president's appointing them and all the appointments by a president are going to be political, you end up in a situation where the, the decisions are political. That the court's actually listening to what the people want. See, the court is the one branch that should never listen to what the people want. The court shouldn't give a shit what the people want. They really shouldn't. The, the, the president, the Congress, everybody else should care. The court should have ears plugged to what society wants. And they should be just reading the document and reading the law and going, conflict, down, done. And so many laws would crumble under that. But would we be in a libertarian society then, or would we just be closer to libertarianism? And the reality is, as the Constitution is written, the government can pass almost any law. And, you know, we do have the Ninth and Tenth Amendments, but when you read the Constitution in totality, the, the right to pass almost any law is implied. And it makes it very difficult to actually defend freedom using the Constitution 
but it's the best card we have. You know, it's not the Ace of Spades, right? It, it's more like, I don't know, the Jack of Diamonds. But it's the best card we have in our hand. As constitutionalists, as federalists, uh, as republicans, as, as anybody that actually believes in freedom, as classic liberal, as anarchist, in this society right now, it's the best play we have, but it's been almost ruined. So if we just had a system that followed the Constitution to the letter, we would be closer to libertarian ideology, but we wouldn't be there. The reason I say that it's yes and no is we, under the Constitution, if the people of this nation actually wanted that, we could have it. If the people of this nation wanted no law that infringed on personal liberty, following the Constitution, we could have that. The problem is, if the people don't want it, there's enough leeway and power for our government that 51, 52% of society can decide to take away freedoms from 48% of society. And if you look at m many laws, it's exactly what they do. The division of who wants it and who doesn't is 2 or 3% of the entire nation. In a federal republic, which our constitution intended to establish, there are certain things that are prohibited to the government that the government shall never do. And to actually create a constitution that would pr provide for libertarianism, we would need a lot more amendments to the Constitution. A lot more amendments. A lot more stipulations of what the government may not do. We would probably actually need an amendment that said any further amendments will restrict government, not individuals. That would be the first step. That we could never use an amendment of the Constitution again to increase governmental power. And if you look at the amendments... The first ten, the first ten, every single one restricts the government. If you look at all of the amendments that came out after the tenth, the majority of them empowered the government. So the Constitution allowed for amendments that increased government power, allowed for amendments that would repeal prior amendments. That restricted government. Those two things are counter to libertarianism. Because can we make gun ownership wholesale illegal in this country? Yes, we can. It can happen. What it requires is two-thirds of the state in the constitutional amendment process. Now, do they have a prayer in hell of doing that right now? No. Could they? Yes. And if they passed a new amendment that said firearms are now illegal in the United States of America for possession by civilians and that amendment passed under our Constitution, it would be constitutional. So yeah, the Constitution does have a conflict with libertarian philosophy because those things could occur. But in the end, in a republic, we are all to be the guardians of our own republic. And the real failure in this nation is not a failure by government. It's a failure by the people. We are ignorant is a people of how money is even created, let alone monetary policy. We are ignorant of our own history. We're ignorant of the history that we're taught in school. Most people don't even know the history they were taught in school, which is revisionist history. 
were ignorant of many of the things that have been left out of the story that made us great, and they were left out because they made us great, and they lead you to believe that self-reliance and independence and self-sufficiency are great, and we are ignorant to many of the atrocities committed by our country because they show that power and government collusion with corporate entities lead to misery and suffering and abuse. We are ignorant to all of these things. We are ignorant to being responsible for ourselves any further. The Constitution is not a perfect document. The Constitution had a provision in it that labeled people based on the color of their skin to be only one-third human. That is a flaw. And those today that say, oh, well, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you're not willing to acknowledge your own evil, you have no potential to fight or prevent future evil. You must acknowledge your own evil. The blight of slavery in this nation was one of the most evil things ever done by one class of humans to another class of humans. The other side, though, is it's not unique to America. The concept of slavery is not an American evil. It's a human one. It's a global one. For those of you that are religious, read your Bible. It's nothing new. But it is an evil. And the very foundational document of our country allowed for one human being to possess another human being. The brilliance of the amendments, though, where it was possible to restrict that oppression in the future. And the reason the founders did it, and you can't have this discussion if you don't acknowledge the other side of it, the reason the founders did it is there was no hope, no hope of becoming an independent nation unless all 13 colonies united and some of the colonies were, it was a deal breaker and they were out. And if the founders had said the hell with it, then we'll just go on our own, and whoever comes, comes. Even if the revolution had been successful, slavery still would have existed in those other states or colonies at the time. It wouldn't have ended it. And the nation fought a bloody war, and one of the primary reasons for that was slavery. It was not the only reason. That's something else we've been lied to about. And this is why we must keep evil out of our society. Not immorality, but evil. Immorality is subjective. You're doing something with somebody else or by yourself that I don't approve of, and I find it to be immoral. Fine. But you're not harming anybody. And everybody participating is willing. Then it's not an evil. You're owning another human being is an evil act. And the Constitution allowed for evil. Yeah. Another provision that's in conflict with libertarian philosophy in the Constitution is, I should never harm you unless I'm in defending the violations of the right of somebody else that cannot stand up for themselves. So you're harming somebody actively. That's the only time I can use force, when you are aggressing on me or aggressing on someone that I have sworn to defend. 
And if it's me, I've sworn to defend all of you, every citizen of this country, in your hour of weakness, when you're being aggressed upon, whether you want it or not. Okay? But that's that's libertarianism. You you stand across the street and call me all kinds of names, words that I don't use on the on the show, you know, f words and c words and things like that, you know, things beyond asshole. And and you but you don't go on my property. As a libertarian, I'm not going to come over there and punch you in the face. But you come on my property and start doing that, and pounding on my door. You're either going to get beaten into the ground or more likely shot. Non-aggression. Force to be used in defense only. That's libertarian. Well, the Constitution gives the power to Congress and the President to use military force. But it does not specify that it is only be, to be used as a response to aggression. The Constitution makes it legal for us to declare war for political reasons or the President to order a strike to make somebody else do what he wants. That's not libertarian either. Now, you might say, well, usually when we do that, somebody is being against an ally. Well, fine, but that's not required that that be proven to the American people before our tax dollars are used to blow up fellow human beings on the other side of the planet. That is not libertarian. But under the Constitution, could we have it be libertarian if the sentinels of this nation were to stand and say, we will not be doing that. Yes. But again, it's society's failure. And I could write a constitution for this nation that I believed to be perfect, that would correct all of these things, that would restrict the government's role, that would set a timeline to uncouple from the system that we've created. And no matter how well written, or how ironclad, or how clear the language, how inspired, be it divinely or otherwise, if the people of the republic didn't stand, the document in the end would not matter. And that's where we are as both Americans and libertarians today in regard to the Constitution. While flawed, it gives us the power as a society to create the very thing we say we wish to have. But so many of us are ignorant. So many of us are brainwashed. So many of us are lazy. So many of us have become stupid. That we want what's easiest. And we've set a course as a nation toward disaster. And while some of us are screaming and yelling and preparing... The majority of people are partying, and they're not really worried about it. Even though they intrinsically know, they're like, yeah, what are you going to do? We have a better way. They're not ready for it yet. And that's why I don't talk about these deep political things very often. Because it doesn't matter if every single person out there today heard my words and said, you know what? I've disagreed with Jack on this and this and this as far as libertarians go. But you know what? I'm 100% on board right now. And I had 90,000 of you guys on board with me. We're not even a beginning to approach a counterweight to the ignorance, stupidity, apathy, and evil that exists in our society.
We're not. You have people right now that when they hear a child was blown up in another country, go, eh, so what? Not only is that not libertarian, as far as I'm concerned, that's not American. It's really not. And on that note, what is America? Who are real Americans? What does the name mean if we actually take the marketing and make it reality? And the answer for me is I don't know, and my view of that has changed over the years, but many of the things that I've believed when I was a very young idealistic person still remain in the ideal of what American could be. And I'd like to share something with you at the close of today's show that I wrote in 1996. So I was 24, just about three years out of the military. Um, I was struggling. This was right before I really kind of found my feet in, in, in success in business. Um, it's pretty broke, but I was getting by and I had some good friends. And I had a lot of time that I had taken with reflection. Remember, when I got out of the military, I spent a few months on the Appalachian Trail hiking. I had come to Texas. I had actually found a decent job by this point. And I was working hard to figure out what I wanted. And I was also examining my past and a lot of my beliefs. And I was writing a lot, a lot of things, some that was good, some that not so good. I'm sitting here at this notebook looking at all these things I wrote back then. Maybe one day I'll take some of them and put them together and publish them because some of them are interesting. Most of them are not political. This one is, but only sort of is. To me, this still says a lot about what America is supposed to be. Maybe not what it is, but what we're supposed to be. It was called America, Where Are You? America, Where Are You? This is your son. I studied your heroes in school and dreamed of one day standing alongside them with honor. I lashed out in anger when those who had no value of freedom burned your flag. To a child, everyone loves you, and none can bring you down. Maybe that's why I still get goosebumps when children sing your name. America, where are you? This is your son. I wore your colors in pride during time of war when I was still a boy. I knew that you were worth any cost because your premise was eternal freedom. I still believe in you today, but it's hard for you to breathe among the bureaucrats and politicians who choke you with taxes and bribes. America, I know where you are. You're in the sons and daughters who will never give you up. You're in the children the government called men who died in your name. Living in the memory of those who died with honor to preserve you. You're in the hearts of lonely men and women who have no one left. You're the homeless on the street. America, you are the ideal that freedom You are the ideal that no one can put a price on freedom, and you're right. America, this is your son. I still believe in you. I hope you will stand tall once more for us shining. I hope you will stand tall once more shining for us like when we were children. You're not about Congress and corruption. You're not about a justice department with no concept of justice. You're about honor and pride. You're about the unity that carries us in time of tragedy. 
You're the reason people help each other, simply because they carry your name. For to be called an American is the greatest honor I know. America, this is your son, and I number more than one. Now, when I wrote that, I was still card-carrying member of the Republican Party, and I think some of that comes through. The main reason I read that for you, though, is for those of you that are dealing with people and you just go, how do you not get this? That's where I was at 24. I'm in my 40s today. That was the root that grew into who I am. And many of the people out there that are awakening but not yet awake are in that process. And I can tell you there are many things that I know to be true now. I know they're true that you could have never convinced me of when I was the young man who wrote those words. But the seed was already planted. It's pretty clear. It's pretty clear that I understood the problem. I just wasn't fully aware of what the solution actually was and how complicated the solution actually is. Along the way, I figured something out, though. A lot of people are in that walk at different levels, and they're going to take a long time to get to a point of clarity. And a lot of people are too lazy and apathetic to ever even begin to ask tough questions in their lives. And I don't have time to wait. And those of you who have figured this out, you don't have time to wait. That's why we talk about building liberty and self-sufficiency in our own lives. And that, if you want to be an American, is the greatest contribution you can make right now. To be the person that doesn't need your fellow man, but is there to help your fellow man when he needs you and when he's worthy of your help. And flat out, not everyone is worthy of your help. And you can't even help everyone that is. But if you can help a few and do for yourself and build your own independence and your own liberty, well, then this nation does have hope. I don't know if it'll look the same in 50 years, even with the borders. The ideal, and you heard the word in there multiple times, even then I got it. It's not a place. America is not a place. It's an ideal and one that we've strayed from. But because it's an ideal, it can never die. It can never die. It can be twisted and manipulated and sold to you as a lie. But it will always be there as long as someone remembers what it's really supposed to be about. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer, it's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. 
Show you.